Okay. Well, I'm going to say good morning to you, and I hope you've had a, a great week. I missed last week, um, although I hear we had some puppies in here, which is kind of kind of fun. Last week we did our our family Christmas. Um, you know, it's, it seems like it's as a pastor, Christmas time you stay somewhat busy, and uh, so over my lifetime. Uh, I think the very first year I was in ministry, we we had my parents came. We were in Wisconsin. They came and people came. And I think I saw them about an hour the whole time they were there. Just because you're going, going, going. So we learned early on, nope, the best thing to do is just wait till after Christmas. And uh, so my daughter flew in from Texas and we had um, our our six-year-old, our three-year-old, our ten-year-olds just going at it and uh, always always kind of a fun uh, fun time. Always miss it here so it's good to be back. We're going to get into a little section of Romans today that I, I like to call thick soup. Thick soup because theologically what we're going to kind of deal with today is something that for, my, for me personally has been one of those you got to really wrestle with this this text and what it really means but you'll see i think you'll see its relevancy for our world and for our lives today i i don't know if you can get a more relevant section of the bible than what we're going to look at here in romans um let me pray and then we'll kind of set the stage and let's dive in but uh lord god as we come together we come in your name we come to uh, to grow and sometimes growth is, is just uh, small and incremental. Uh, Lord, this is a word I know I've wrestled with. You know I've wrestled with for a long time. It's hard. And, uh, and yet at the same time, it's right. It's, it's good. Because it speaks into our lives. It speaks into our culture. What, what we see happening around us. What's going on in our kids' lives. What our families have to battle. Lord, uh, all wrapped up in this, this little section that you give us today. So I'm just going to ask that for your presence. Help us to individually uh, think about what, what your word means for each one of us uh, as, as couples. Help us think about it as, as moms and dads and grandparents. Lord, just be with us uh, in this word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's say it together. Amen. Okay. Um, we've kind of gone through, if you will, the first part of chapter 1 which uh, is, is um, basically referred to as the, the greeting. You know, Paul writing his, his, his opening to these Christians that are living in Rome. And one of the things that makes Romans so relevant, I think, is that when you think about these cities that make up um, Asia Minor at that time, Rome has a lot of characteristics that are very similar to, to much of what we are dealing with here in America. Uh, I'm always careful to, to make the distinction that, that Rome and America, they're, they're different from one another in a number of ways, and yet there's a lot of similarities that we can, we can draw. Rome is a metropolitan place. It's, it's kind of that place where you're gathering together people from all over uh, the world, and you're mixing cultures together. And one of the things the Romans prided themselves on was the ability to kind of be that breadbasket with a bunch of mixed up pieces of bread. Uh, Rome, unlike many of the, the power civilizations prior to it, did not try to extinguish the religions of the people who were coming into it. 
So if you go back and you study the Assyrian culture, the Babylonian culture, um, the Egyptian culture, when they, when they would, when they sought world domination, which they all did, uh, they would go into a country and they would decimate it, and they would replace they would replace the the ideas, the ideology, the religion of those countries that they had defeated with their own. In other words, they would say, "Once we defeat you, you become like us." Okay, Rome is the first world power that doesn't do that, that actually uh, says when we defeat you, we absorb you. And we're going to allow you to continue to practice some of the, the cultural traditions and religions that you had when you were over here and over here and over here and over here. Okay? So it really is a breadbasket. You think about America today. A lot of similarities. You know, we're in a culture that says everything goes, and no one has the right to tell another person that they're, that they're wrong unless that person happens to be a Christian. Then you can tell them that they're, that they're, wrong, that they're wrong. It feels like that sometimes. Um, but I think that's why there's so many similarities between America and what's going on in Rome. Rome was corrupt. I mean, absolutely corrupt. And we're, we're at that, that stage in history as we get into the book of Romans where um, Rome is being led by emperors who more and more and more become um, absolutely corrupt. Uh, beyond that, literally insane, uh, to the point that, that Nero will begin to persecute, uh, Domitian will continue that persecution all the way till we get to the book of, of Revelation. So, what Paul is doing here in his opening is he's, he's really expressing to the, the, the Christians in Rome the fact that I've been wanting to come to you. I've been wanting to physically be present with you. But uh, if, if you'll, if you'll kind of come to this verse with me, go to verse 13. He says, but as much as I've intended to come to you, notice these words, I have thus far been prevented. I've been, I've been stopped. Okay. So what we know about Paul particularly through our study of, of Acts, is he is a spirit-led man. He wakes up in the morning, and he talks to God, and he asks God, where do you want me to be, and who do you want me to talk to, and what do you want me to do? And he really listens. And so up to this point in, in Paul's life, He's saying, I've, I've wanted to come there. I know what's going on in Rome. I've heard about, I hear about it. I get reports from it. I want to come. I want to strengthen you. Um, and yet what God has, has been doing up to this point is he's been saying, no, I've been pre prevented. So it, it's, not, it's not people that are preventing Paul from going into Rome. It's literally the Spirit of God who up to this point has said, nope, you're, you're not going to go. Okay. So at this point, Paul's saying... I'm gonna. I plan to come. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got an offering that I'm carrying with me to address the drought that's going on, and to actually take care of of not only the church but through the church, the people of Jerusalem. But it's my intention then to 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 go on and to come to you and to be face to face with you. All right. Uh, to the to the degree. Look at verse 14 that he actually uses this word, and I, I kind of. Uh, like this word, he says, in fact, I'm under obligation. He feels under obligation to come to them. Uh, not just to the, to the Jews, but also to the, to the Greeks uh, and to those who are uh, apart from any, you know, Roman Greco culture. 
um, I'm, I'm, I'm of obligation to come to you to, to do what? Preach the gospel to those of you who are in Rome. And this is kind of interesting to me. The, the term obligation here uh, in Greek is ophalatis, and it's a debt obligation. All right, so it would be the same thing as if, 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 uh, if our church went out and borrowed money, we're under obligation to pay the bank. They, we owe them that, right? Paul, remember, refers to himself always as a slave because he, he believes that. I, didn't, I, I had someone buy me. His name is Jesus Christ. He paid for me with his blood, and I, I am owned by him. Well, this is a very similar term. He's saying... You don't own me. Jesus owns me, but that Jesus has put me under a debt obligation to to do what? To share my life with you, and to bring the gospel into into your lives. And uh, I always think about that. Where this is kind of the ending of his introduction. What does it mean for me to think about my life as as one that that's under a debt obligation? to bring the gospel into our world today. Don't think of that in terms of law. Think of that in terms of gospel. But at the same time, our good friend Bonhoeffer would say, don't cheapen, don't cheapen this word. I think sometimes we do that. We're like, well, I'm saved and I'm under grace and I don't have to do anything. I'm like, no, 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 no. God, when he, when he calls us, he, he calls us to li- live out this calling and part of living out that calling is to, to have that sense that guess what I'm I, I have I'm, I'm under a debt obligation to do what to give my life to a God who owns me and to to particularly think about what does it mean for me to share the the gospel of Jesus Christ with with the world let's go into verse 16 this starts this next section and um, it's a prelude to what I'm calling the more difficult section. Um, but you almost need the prelude to get into the more difficult section. Um, and, and this, by the way, just a few verses uh, happen to have been very significant uh, verses for a man by the name of Martin Luther. Go to verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who is believing, the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God that leads into salvation. And I, I always stop there and ask a question, why does Paul say that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Why, why would you be ashamed? of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to think about this from two different perspectives. Paul's primary audience, the, the Jews and the, and the Romans. So for Romans, what are gods? Gods are powerful entities that we interact with in our, our human existence in, in a way that is, is most often frustrating because the, the, the gods rule and, and we don't and we try to get them to do what we want them to do but they don't seem to respond the way that we want them res- to respond. Doggone it, that, that Thor keeps sending rain on Nebraska just 
pouring that rain down and so we make sacrifices to him we do things and he just keeps pouring that rain down on Nebraska and we want you to stop doing that they're capricious gods but they're powerful gods what is the God Paul brings one who dies who dies on a cross and so if I if I'm a Roman I look at that and I go what's your what's your who tell us about your God yep our God died kind of God is that? That's some, is that like a wimpy, weak God? Your God died? Yep, he died. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that because the gospel doesn't stop at death. It continues, right, with life. Did your God, is your God able to cause you to get up out of a grave? Hmm? That's what intrigued the Romans, right? I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Now, for the, for the Jews, also think about this. For the Jews, who is their God? Who is Yahweh? Yahweh's a God of power and might. Where do the Jews expect Yahshua, the Messiah, to be? A God who comes down from heaven and does what? Smashes, politically, in military terms, smashes the Jews, right? Subjugates them, raises the, the Jews back up to their proper place, installs them as the political power of the day, just like, just like under the, 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 the rule of, of David and Solomon. And so let that Messiah come. Instead, he's born in a barn. And he grows up. Where? In, in Nazareth? Are you kidding me? What, what good could come out of, out of Nazareth? And then, and then what does he do? He runs around talking about being meek and, and, and being poor. And that, that, that's no, what kind of God is that? And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because the gospel alone has the power to take people into salvation, to make people right with God. And it raised a, a kind of a question in my head today that um, what's happening is so often... I think in Christianity, we, we get a little bit ashamed of the gospel. I think we do. Um, and I'm speaking as a, as a pastor right now. It strikes me that so often um, we kind of want to take the gospel and, and adorn, it, adorn it with things that make it a little bit more comfortable for people to live with in our culture and our, our world today. I'm going to give you a silly example and then I'm going to get a little bit serious. My silly example is kind of a, a, a word picture, if you will. And it's, it's a true story. Ann and I are out in, in North Dallas. And we were shopping. It was Christmas time. And uh, if anyone, if any of you know much about North Dallas, then you'll understand that the term bling, bling, fits pretty well, right? I mean, this is the this is the part of the world where the the, the newscasters come on and tell the ladies, is this a good hair day or not a good hair day, right? This is big hair country, right? And uh, so we're, we're out in, in this little bling area, and uh, we walked into this little shop, and, and Ann always likes to look at the different nativity sets that are out there. And so we walk up to this nativity set, and I'm sitting there, and I'm not paying much attention. I'm like old Ken Danker, and I, I'm not... <laughs> You knew I was going to pick on you, Ken. You know how we shop. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And all of a sudden, I look up and I look at this nativity set. And for some reason, I actually started looking at it. And I'm like, 
for goodness sakes. Well, they had taken like fur coats and put them on Mary. And the shepherds had like bling beads hanging off of them. And I'm like, for crying out loud. I mean, you can take this bling thing a little bit too far. I'm like, no, for, for, for. I almost wanted to yell, get this thing out of this store right now, right? Well, that's the funny example. Here's the reality is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not so sure because I listen to a lot of preaching that goes on in our world today. And it strikes me that sometimes we want to make the gospel comfortable for people. You can be a Christian and you don't really have to change much at all about your life. You can be a Christian and, and you can live in a, in a very comfortable way. You don't have to do all these. God's done it for you. And all of a sudden, we're, we're taking something that is meant to be a calling on our life. I mean, we've gone from a Paul who says, I, I'm under a debt obligation to literally give my life away for the sake of other people coming into eternity to, nope, I can, I can become a Christian, join a church, decide how I want to do this Christianity thing, and uh, do, I want to, do I want to get involved in, in any, any of this whole gospel outreach? No, I don't want to get involved in that. I don't have time for that. Do I want to give to this? I don't want to give to that. I, I, don't, I don't need to give to that. And all of a sudden, we can make Christianity very comfortable for people. I can live the way I want to live. I can decide the, to do life the way I want to do it. And in a small way, we begin to adorn the gospel with things of the culture, things of the culture. And it goes further than that, doesn't it? To the point that some of the most popular voices in theology today are the voices of Christian teachers who want you to believe that God puts you here to be happy and prosperous. And when I, when I, when I listen to somebody saying to me, Here's what God wants you to have. He wants you to. He wants you to have this. I mean, whatever home you have, you know what? If you if you if you're really faithful to God and you follow Him, right? You, you can you can double the size of that thing. God wants you to be a prosperous, happy person. And somehow, this is caught on in America to the degree that uh, some of again some of the most popular voices in in our world today have taken this simple gospel that is about giving our lives away and we've tried to adorn it with cultural thinking that actually takes the gospel and changes it and makes it something that it was never intended to be and it's why it's why I kind of I kind of have come to believe that even the great commission has somehow gotten changed from go you therefore and make disciples a disciple is somebody who's given their life to follow Jesus Christ. I think we've changed that from go ye and make disciples to go ye and make church members. And somehow if I'm a church member, we're, we're good to go. And, and I'm telling you right now, so many of our churches in America today have kind of fallen victim to the endowment of the gospel. So I kind of made a couple of notes for myself. Um, to me, anything that attempts to give Christianity unintended cultural value that tries to say to someone, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian, it's actually going to help you better your position in this culture. No, it won't. Um, if I can be honest with you, 
If you're if you're a mom and dad and you're you're coming into into to this church, here's what I'm going to say to you: um, If you start to follow Jesus Christ, it'll probably make you a little bit miserable. It might hurt a little bit. You're going to find yourself saying, "You know what, kids? No, we're not going to be a part of that. No, we're not going to do this. Uh, no, no to that." Yes to this. Here's where we are going to go. We're going to get involved in this. And all of a sudden your kids are like, well, we're, mom, mom, dad, we're, we're weird. Can our family just be normal? Not really. Because guess what? There's nothing normal about living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. There just isn't. There's not. And, and so we adorn Christianity when we try to give it, I think, when we try to give it unintended cultural value. Secondly, it seems to me that anything that presents Christianity as capable of peaceful cultural coexistence is, is really somewhat of an adornment. Because you, again, I can't, I can't live out the calling that God has, has given me and not be, listen to me, at war with much of what's happening in our culture today. At war with it. At war with it. And I, I'm, I'm serious about that. Uh, we're living in a culture where we, we look at things and we're like, oh, you know, that's somebody else's problem. Uh, you know, don't, don't get all worked up about that. Well, no. There's a war going on, and it's a war for souls. And as a follower of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what that means for me is I'm bringing a message into this world that is countercultural. And I don't expect people to just embrace it. I don't expect people to just say, oh, what a great guy you are telling me. No, they'll say, how dare you say that to me? How, how dare you judge me? How dare you tell me that? How dare you not, not participate in what I want you to participate in? Well, it's not because I, I want to be mean or I want to be nasty, or, but there's a war going on for souls. And, and, and to, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to say, I'm going to build my life on a truth that I think is the truth, and that I think really can bring what God wants to have in your life. Not happiness and prosperity, but, tr but true joy, contentment, and, 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 a, and a calling that brings purpose into, into your life. That will lead you towards an eternity with Him where we will enjoy His, his presence. So, I don't want to just pass over those words, and I think we do sometimes. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power and the salvation, and we just move on. I just think that Paul's trying to signal something here. He's trying to say, I'm coming into Rome. Am I going to come peacefully? Not really. Am I going to come with a word that everybody's going to adopt and, 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 and take hold of? Nope, not really. I'm coming because I do believe that there's a war going on for souls, and and it's a war about what does it mean to be right with God. And I'm going to come with this unadorned, simple, cross-driven gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not ashamed of it. Side note. The other thing I've always appreciated about Paul and his ability to be unashamed with the gospel is the fact that he is a trained orator. Think about that. Rhetoric, today, if, if I went to Harvard today, I could, take a, I, could, I could get a degree, a master's degree, a doctoral degree in rhetoric. It, it is an art. Paul was trained in it. Did he use it? 
Nope. You'll see Paul, when he goes out and speaks the gospel to people, speaks in such a way that his intention is to be clear about who Jesus Christ is and what it means to be in relationship to him. And he, he eschews ancient rhetoric. Why? Because I don't, I don't want to ever be in a position where I, Paul, believe that it's my rhetorical abilities that are what will bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not. The only thing that will bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ is this power right here. And so in an unadorned, simple way, I'm going to come out and I'm going to speak the gospel. You've heard me say this before, but it's one of the things I've always appreciated about a Billy Graham. Unadorned, simple gospel. You can listen to a hundred Billy Graham radio broadcasts from the past, and he says the same thing a hundred times, and there is nothing fancy about it. We're sinners. We're going to go to hell if we don't repent of our, of our sin and come underneath the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's Billy Graham. Why, why, did, why did people listen to Billy Graham? Because it was unadorned, and it cuts through, and it tells the truth, and that's what Paul is saying here, is I'm coming to speak the truth to you about what does it mean to become right with God. You pick that up in this next verse. Look at verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. So this idea of righteousness, to Sunni, is at the heart of Judaism to this day. How do I get right with God? Well, the Jews would say you do that through the law. You accomplish getting right with God through the law. This weekend, when I was with our confirmands, we spent a lot of time talking about different theological systems that exist in our world today, one of which is Catholicism. What does Catholicism teach? I am saved by grace alone through faith. Nope. I'm saved by grace alone through faith plus my works. Plus my works. Minus my works, I die. Do I go to heaven? No, I go to purgatory. And I sit in purgatory until enough of you do enough good things to spring me out. Now I get to go to heaven, right? Hmm. Paul would say, mm -mm, is that, what does it mean to be right with God? And what Paul's going to say is the gospel is about the only way that we can get right with God. And it isn't through what you do, it's through what Jesus Christ has done. And righteousness is a matter of what? Trusting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of what I do. I'm under bondage, Yes. I'm under obligation, a debt obligation. I'm giving my life away. But not, not so that I can win, right, my rightness with God. But because of what he did, he won it for me. And that is what propels me. And it's what you hear in the second half of that verse. Uh, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I'm speaking to you as one now who has faith. From faith for faith. So that you might have faith. From faith. I have faith. I've been brought to that place where 
Jesus Christ killed me on the road to Damascus and raised me up a new man. From that faith, I speak it to you because I want you to have that faith. And I want you to hear this. The righteous shall live by faith. This is going to be about faith in Jesus Christ, not about what we do. By the way, that quote is from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Um, and here's the interesting thing about it. When you read Luther's life story, Okay. You become aware that, uh, that, that Luther really had to wrestle with all of this because he, he was Catholic. He was growing up in a setting where he's being taught it's about what you do. Uh, he, he believed his whole life, I can never do enough. I can't get there. And uh, as a teacher of the Word of God, Romans became pretty significant for, for Luther. Um, it started to shine some light on what is, what is the righteousness of God all about. But Luther would say that of all the, all the passages in Scripture, it's this quote in Romans out of Habakkuk that did this. Bam! It's this verse out of Habakkuk that God used to take this Catholic monk and say to him, everything in your life has to change. Everything. Everything you've been taught, everything you know, everything you've based your life upon is going to change in a moment now. This was his light bulb scripture. Now, I would, I would say to you that, that, that Luther's transition was a matter of years of God working on him, right? But it's this verse out of, out of Romans, this quote from Habakkuk, that caused him to say, oh, wait a minute, what does that mean? The, the just, the ones who are right with God, it's, it's they're living through faith. What does that mean? It means it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. So picture all this. Paul's coming into, into Rome. He says, I'm going to speak to you in an unadorned way about a God who came into this world who died. I'm not ashamed of that because guess what? He also rose again from the dead. And I'm going to tell you that, that salvation is about believing and trusting in him. I'm here as one who had to be put to death in order to have life. And so from faith, I hope you come to know this Jesus Christ who wants you to have a relationship with him. How badly does he want you to have a relationship with you? Badly enough that he's doing something about it. Have you noticed? This is the hard part. Swing over to this next section. Here's what God's been doing. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived. Hmm. Well, there's a word that doesn't seem to fit into our culture very well. Wrath. For the wrath of God is being revealed. Just like the gospel has to be revealed, the term is apocalypto. Can you hear in that second half of that word apocalypto? Something that happens to the, to the moon every now and then? What do we go through? An eclipse, right? You can't see it. Apocalypto means from an eclipse. And so what he's saying is just like 
just like you're blind to the gospel and to what it means to be right with God, you're also blind, you're also being blind to, to what he's doing around you. And what he's doing around you is he is trying to reveal himself, listen to me, through his wrath, the Greek word orge. Again, not a very popular not a very popular sermon in our world today. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard, I, I probably shouldn't use this name, but I don't, I've never heard this, this evangelical preacher say something. Now, friends, today we're going to talk about wrath. Don't you just love wrath? I love wrath. <laughs> no, I don't hear that message, right? Um, in fact, where is wrath? Where, I'm, I'm listening to all these things. Where is wrath? In, in fact, let me ask you, whatever happened to even hell? It seems, like, it seems like a lot of our churches, we've kind of got this big eraser out. We're like, oh, wrath, that's not going to sell well. That's not going to go so well. Let's get that out of here. Oh, there's hell. Let's get that out of here. We can't have that in here. No, what Paul's saying is it's actually something good. I want you to hear, I want you to hear about how we become right with God. And, and let me tell you what he's doing. God's not just sitting there on the sidelines. He's actually trying to make himself known amongst you. And the way he's trying to make himself known amongst you is he is revealing it. He's uncovering it. He's uncovering himself through what he is doing. You are actually experiencing his wrath here upon earth. Now we take that word sometimes, wrath, and we turn it into something very negative. Like God's this God who's going, bam, bam, I'm going to crush you people. It's not, not what wrath is. The wrath of God is the movement of God towards breaking men's stubborn hearts and then leading them to himself. That's wrath, right? The intention of wrath is not to crush, but to, to break and to cause a man to have to turn back to God because they have no other answer. There is no other answer. There's no plan B. There's only one plan. And so does God, does God exercise, does he work in our world today in a way that most theologians refer to as his, his alien presence in a way that doesn't seem to fit his character? We all say, no, God is love. Oh, God is love. God loves us all. Or does God actually sometimes act in a way alien to what we think of him as in a way that's hard that breaks us? Absolutely. You know what Paul is saying is he's revealing our ungodliness. He's revealing the fact that we're not right with him. Right? Um, I'm, I'm kind of going through a book right now. This is kind of interesting to me. Um, you guys know this guy, E.J.? Elton John. When I left Dallas, I was driving here to Grand Island for the first day. And I thought, um, turn my radio on. Elton John came on. And he was singing one of my, one of my favorite songs. And I thought, this is going to become my new theme song for Grand Island. <laughs> Goodbye, yellow brick road. We're the dogs of society, how? You can't put me in your penthouse. I'm going back to my plow. You guys remember that song? I'm like, here we come, plow. <laughs> Bye, Dallas. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a joke, but um, <laughs> I did grow up with Elton, and um, 
most of us most of us who are as old as I am did back in the 70s he was like this incredible pop star he um I mean, there's been a movie that came out about him and, and you know and then a, a book that came out about him I'm kind of listening I'm trying to take some of that stuff in because I, I think it it's reflective of our our culture of our day and I try to learn from that and Elton as most of us know uh, is probably not a picture of godliness right and yet if you read his book it's entitled me there's theology in it and it's very prominent and he means to preach and guess what his preaching sells well so as I'm reading his book he's talking about the, the, the fact of AIDS and of course Elton was a homosexual he uh, went through that period in, in history where AIDS was dis- discovered uh, particularly amongst the homosexuals and um, Elton's looking back on that time and decrying the, the death of a number of his, his friends. And, and he now puts on the preacher uniform and says this. How did Christians respond to my friends and to these people who were dying? Well, here's what the Christians did. The Christians got up into their pulpits and they said things like this. AIDS is a plague from God against homosexuality. That's what those Christians did. And what he's saying is, he's, he's, he's really becoming a theologian in this, this, at this point, and he's saying, how dare Christianity suggest in any way that God would use something like AIDS amongst the people who are homosexuals? How dare someone say that? And then he goes further. In his book, if you read it, most of you won't, but he says this. He says, but those who are believers in Jesus Christ, he literally says that, were those who brought a different message, a message of a God of love and a God of peace. That sermon, by the way, sells very well in America today and across our globe with some exceptions. Adorned gospel. It's the idea that, nope, we're going, to make, we're going to make Christianity comfortable for everybody because guess what? God is love. God loves everybody. Whether you're a practicing porn star or I'm practicing homosexuality or I'm, a, I'm practicing whatever sin is in our, our lives, it's all the same in God's eyes. When you take sin and you say, well, it's really something that, that is okay with God, you've changed the gospel, right? And what Paul is doing here is he's, he's trying to answer a question. He's saying um, this wrath is actually being uncovered against ungodliness. Now, is it true that a large section of the Christian church did not respond in a very compassionate way Two people dying of AIDS? Probably, probably so, right? Is it true that uh, a segment of Christianity stood up in pulpits in a way that said, how dare you people do this thing and God's going to condemn you to hell for it? Yeah. Again, wrath, that's not wrath. Wrath is, I'm going to uncover something here for you. 
And isn't it interesting that not just HIV, but all sexually transmitted diseases, have you ever noticed this, occur outside of a monogamous marriage relationship? All of them. In Winston Churchill's day, it was syphilis. And some preacher could have stood up and, and did and said, you know what, this syphilis stuff, that's the wrath of God. What do you mean it's the wrath of God? It's the wrath of God. God is trying to reveal the fact that we're not right with him. Why does he have to do this? Because guess what? We're really stubborn people and we like life our way. And guess what? In the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They bit that, they bit that lie that we can be our own gods and we can determine what's right and what's wrong. And here's what God is saying to us all the time. He's saying, well, you can try that, but here's what I'm going to do. Boom, I'm going un to unveil your unrighteousness. And I am going to, if I, if I, if I can do anything for you, I'm going to break you. I'm going to cause you to have to be like, whoa, well, there's no, there's no hope here for me, except one. And that same God of wrath is a God of love who is using wrath to try to bring people to himself. And so was it wrong for a preacher to say this is the wrath of God being revealed against ungodliness? No, he's right. Is it wrong to say it in a way that, that simply aims to condemn people? Well, yeah, sure, that, that wouldn't be helpful. But as we bring the unadorned gospel into our world, here's what I'm saying to you, is it's going to collide, collide with the thinking and culture of our world in a way that puts you and I into a position that is culturally uncomfortable. And yet Paul says, this is the truth I'm not ashamed of. I will stand upon it because it's what leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Lord, as we uh, continue into this book, I can't think of words more relevant for our time. To see you at work in an alien way, what we do, and uh, not just outside of of the church but within it and in our own lives your wrath is good it intends to bring us to you to cling to the only thing through which we have hope and that is your cross Lord as we go into this week I pray that you go with us be our strength allow us to, uh, to fight the battle uh, that you give us to fight in Jesus name we pray Amen thank you guys